This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate.
الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جعلته سهلا وأنت تجعل الحزن إذا شئت سهلا My brothers and sisters in Islam السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We meet again in yet another درس circle about another giant from the giants of the scholars of Islam. He is the second Imam of the great four Imams, the founders of the four famous schools of thought, Madhahib. We've already spoken about Imam Abu Hanifa and last week we began speaking about the second Imam after him, Imam Malik ibn Anas And today insha'Allah we will continue the second part about Imam Malik as last week we weren't able to complete his whole uh, life story and to be honest one or two lectures is not really enough we will do no justice speaking about these great four Imams at all but it is, in a nutshell, for you to just sort of grab a general picture, a general feeling, as though you are sitting with them, a general feeling of what type of people they were, how they thought, how their lifestyle was, how did they develop these schools of thought. But the most important thing about learning about these great scholars is their character, their etiquettes, in seeking knowledge and how they were surrounded by people who learned from them their character before their knowledge what kind of people they were as role models they are our examples in life Imam Malik the man of aura as we said the man whom when you looked at him you cannot help yourself but give him respect not only because of his knowledge. Extra to that were the features which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him. He was a tall man, wide-chested, broad-chested. He looked strong. But the difference between him and the rest of the residents of Medina was his 
unusual features of being very white, very close to blonde, was basically blonde, and colored eyes. He looked like a Westerner, even though his origin was from Yemen, and he lived in Medina, he, he really stood out. We finished off last week about Imam Malik's, we were beginning to talk about his character as a teacher and as a seeker of knowledge. And we spoke about how he became into the school and the circle of education. And where he was inspired from, it was his mother and his father, but mostly his mother, who basically chartered his life into the world of great fiqh jurisprudence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, in the ayah which completes by saying, يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Allah tells us in the Qur'an that He sent people, prophets and people after them. He recites the verses or brings to them the verses of the Qur'an and He purifies them, purifies them, purifies their character. And he teaches them the Qur'an and teaches them the, the Kitab, the Scripture, and he teaches them the wisdom. So with every ayah that speaks about knowledge in relation to these people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala usually accompanies a second characteristic which is, which is simultaneous to knowledge and that is tazkiyah, which is purification, character, etiquettes, manners, respect. You cannot be a knowledgeable person or a student of knowledge if you don't first have the character and respect. And let me remind you what the mother of Imam Malik said to him when she took him to the Masjid al-Nabawi in Medina to learn of the great teacher Rabi'ah ibn Abdurrahman, Rabi'ah al-Ra'i and the likes of him. She said to him, son, before you learn the ilm, the knowledge of these Imams, I want you to learn the character and etiquettes of these Imams. Learn how they sit, how they eat, how they stand, how they look at people, the eye movements, the way they, in other words, the way they tie their shoelaces. Learn these things from them before you learn the knowledge. A person without character but has knowledge is like a child with weapons. It's like a child with weapons. They'll cause destruction. And there is a saying among the Turkish culture when Imam said this to me he says we have a saying that if you're half a doctor you'll kill people and if you are half a alim half a scholar you'll lead people astray and that made a lot of sense to me mashallah Allah says in the Quran ya ayyuhalladhina amanu lima taquluna ma la taf'alun O you who believe why do you say that which yourselves do not do so among the great things which the scholars had to monitor was that they applied what they taught. And you're going to see today, inshallah, the application of this Imam Malik, of what he taught, and what all the Imams feared. Aisha radiallahu anha says about the Prophet wasallam when she was asked about him, she said, كَانَ خُلُقُهُ الْقُرْآنِ His character was the Qur'an itself. So we don't want to live a life of double personalities and we are driven by our desires. These were not these great Imams. I mentioned that Imam Malik's 
fiqh, his way of thinking, was a little bit different to Imam Abu Hanifa. In fact, very different to all the Imams. Imam Abu Hanifa, Shafi'i, and, Ma- and Imam Ahmad. He differed a little bit in the sense, he didn't like to dwell into areas of controversial issues in Aqidah. And he didn't like to dwell into areas of ideological differences, such as what used to happen in Kufa with Imam Abu Hanifa, with the Mu'tazila and the Khawarij, philosophies of uh, Greek theology and Aristotle's beliefs, uh, such as saying today, modernist views, uh, all those, those, those different views. He didn't dwell into them. In fact, he didn't need to do that because he was living in Medina. And in Medina, till today, to a, to a very, to a certain limit, these ideologies are not too many in there as much as they are around the world. The Western influence, the Western ideologies are not entrenched in there. You can still see the tradition there. Imam Malik was a traditional man. He taught according to Amal Ahl al-Madina, the actions and practices of the people of Medina. He was to look at the companions who lived in Medina, and his laws and school of thought revolves a lot around them, as you will see today, inshallah. We mentioned that a man entered once into his circle, and he said to him, Ya Imam. And one of his students by the name of Yahya ibn Yahya, he used to report a lot about Imam Malik. Yahya ibn Yahya, remember that name. He says, a man entered into our circle one day, and he asked the Imam a question. He said, Ya Imam, Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa, the most merciful, rose above his throne. That's literally what it says in the Qur'an. He asked, Kayfa istawa, how did Allah rise? Imam Malik put his head down, and the students could see him sweating. Sweating out of anger. He was angry at that question, asking about the self of Allah, Allah Himself, to describe how He does things. This is unimaginable. This is There is nothing like unto Allah. So to merely ask the question, how does Allah rise, is, is disbelief. So Imam Malik looked up and he said to him, Al-Istiwa'u Ma'loom, the word istiwa is not unknown to us. We know what it is on face value. To rise above, to be above something, not to be below. وَالْكَيْفُ مَجْهُولُ Its features, how Allah does istiwa is unknown to us. وَالْإِمَانُ بِهِ وَاجِبُ Believing in that Allah is above everything is istiwa is a must. We have to believe in this. We can't deny that Allah spoke like this about Himself. Questioning about the nature of Allah's actions and His attributes is a bid'ah. It's an innovation. None of the companions nor any of the prophets ever dwelled into the nature of Allah's attributes. How? Because He is nothing like us. You will never reach the answer to that. He's beyond our imagination, beyond our capabilities. Then he said, أَخْرِجُوهُ Get him out of here with, with force. Get him out. And basically they drove him out like the police do. And he said, وَلَا أَظُنُّهُ 
illa fatan or wala adhunuka illa mubtada' or fatan. I don't assume you accept to be one of a fitna maker or an innovator. So he never liked to dwell into these areas. Brothers and sisters, today we want to continue about also his uh, the reason why he liked to avoid uh, the reason why he chose a bit of niceness in his appearance and his clothing. Some people may think that he was a luxurious person, whereas he wasn't. You can misunderstand that. We mentioned last week that he liked to wear beautiful clothing, the best of clothing. In fact, he liked spending if whatever he could on clothing that was very presentable, and he refused to sit on the chair or on the pla- in the place where the Prophet ﷺ used to sit, in the very same place. And when Umar sat in the Masjid al-Nabawi, in the Rawd al-Sharifa, without being absolutely presentable, would, would bathe beforehand, wear his best of clothing and fill himself with perfume and coll- perfume, and then he would sit, you'd see the serenity on his face, he would look up to you, up at you, and then he would begin. This is the way Imam Malik's personality in how he taught hadith to the people. And we mentioned that before he taught a new hadith, he's about to narrate a new hadith to the students to teach them with its narrations, he would make wudu first, pray to rak'ah, not speak to anyone, walk and sit on on the chair, and then he would speak to the people of the hadith. That's how he would address them with the hadith. My brothers and sisters, Imam Malik learnt of, as we said, Rabi'atul Ra'i, great teacher, and he's called Rabi'ah ibn Abdul Rahman, but he's nicknamed Rabi'atul Ra'i, which means the garden of opinions. Now, scholars do give opinions. When we say opinions, it's different to the way the West speaks about opinions. Opinions in, among the scholars are based on evidence and proof that originates from the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet. ﷺ. Opinions in the West talk from their whims and desires. There is no basis except whims and desires. And that's why you get things like homosexuality and atheism, right? And uh, people who come with very bizarre things where right seems wrong and the wrong seems right in any way they want. This is opinion. Opinion of man is very dangerous if it's not based on evidence and proof that comes from a legitimate source. And our source is from the Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah left this deen with some flexibility in it because of the changing times. But the foundations He gave us in the Qur'an and Sunnah, there is nothing left out that we cannot use to solve any problem that we have in any given society. But the people who do this, who bring these solutions to us, are the scholars. Are the scholars. They are the inheritors of the prophets. Otherwise, we would have never had scholars. We don't need scholars then. We're just enough with the prophets and that's it. But Allah made this deen in a way that you can use its foundations for any changing society. And because of this, brothers and sisters, expect to have differing opinions. That's fine. Differences of opinions among scholars and people is fine. We have to learn to accept that. You cannot change it. And everyone who tried to change it, it's been there for more than 1,400 years. Even among the Sahabas, they differed. Umar ibn Khattab and Abu Bakr They differed on almost every single issue. And when we say differed, we're talking about branches of branches of of the deen, not something that's quite clear. And I gave some examples last week. For example, when I give an uthiyah, uh, should I give it to my relatives who are poor or is it better to give to strangers who are poor? Things like that, which don't really affect your iman or your deen. And they shouldn't. It shouldn't play a role. Uh, Abu Bakr and Umar anhum Rasul said to them, if you ever agree on a matter, 
then automatically I agree. You don't even have to come and consult me. That's how much they differed, Abu Bakr and Umar. If you ever agree on something, just go ahead and do it. Don't even consult me because I know it has to be right for both of you to agree. That's how much they differed. But they loved each other. They died for each other. Umar radiallahu when he became the Khalifa after Abu Bakr radiallahu used to say, لَقَدْ أَتْعَبْتَ مَنْ جَاءَ بَعْدَكَ يَا أَبَا بَكْرِ You have truly exhausted those who came after you, meaning himself. I'm trying to be like you and I can't even reach your status, even though they differed. And in a lot of times, Rasul agreed with Umar, and a lot of times he agreed with Abu Bakr Even a lot of ayat came down in favor of Umar such as the ayah of hijab. Umar is the one who instigated it. So there's nothing wrong with difference of opinion so long as you base it on dalil and so long as it doesn't cause the division. doesn't based on whims and desires. Nationality, culture, race, gender. You know, people who are rich or for whatever. Popularity. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that inshallah very soon in examples of Imam Malik. Imam Malik's fiqh was in the following way. His sources were as follows. This is how he, these are the sources he used. Like every other scholar, including Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik first looked at the Qur'an for solutions. If there was no clear-cut solution in the Qur'an, then he would look second into the sunnah, the ways of the Prophet Sallallahu the tradition of the Prophet Is there anything in the hadith, in anything in his actions? If there was nothing clear-cut, and now we're coming down to very detailed, minute information now about the deen. It has to be something quite special that has occurred. He would look into the opinions of the Sahabas. What did the Sahabas of the Prophet ﷺ consider? He would look into their differing opinions. Then if he couldn't find a clear-cut solution from the opinions of the Sahaba, he would then look at something called Al-Ijma' Consensus of the Scholars. Consensus of the companions and consensus of the scholars, the great scholars that existed. And up to here, all the four Imams still followed up to this stage. Now here was where Imam Malik differed. He looked at something which the other Imams actually uh, didn't agree with him about. Including one of his very close colleagues who studied with him. His name was Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, which some scholars consider Al-Layth his contemporary, his, the student that studied with him, his best friend, to be even more knowledgeable than Imam Malik. Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad used to differ on this. What was it? Imam Malik used to use the practices of the people of Medina. Meaning he would look at their practices and how they acted, and he would say, act like them. And there were more than 120,000 companions in Medina that lived by the time Imam Malik came around. So he used to use their practices to bring out uh, rulings. Imam Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad used to write letters to him saying, Ya Imam, you are right to use these great Sahabas of Medina. That's good. We don't see ourselves any better than them. However, not 200 years later, there are customs involved. Like these people of Medina, they had Arab customs, which they still kept. Something called Urf. Urf, which is acceptable by us today. Traditions of your culture which doesn't go against Islam. You can't take everything of the practice of the people of Medina. This was the opinion of his friend Al-Layth. And Imam Malik respected his opinion, but he stuck to his own, believing that this is the right one. The, if he couldn't find it among the people of Medina, he went to something which Imam Abu Hanifa used, and that is Qiyas, to come to a ruling by comparison. He'd look at a ruling that's similar to it, and say, okay, we'll say that it's like this, we'll practice it like this. For example, uh, cigarettes. 
scholars used qiyas today about smoking cigarettes. A few years back, the scholars used to say that smoking cigarettes is makru, it's just disliked. But when they found out the effects of smoking and tobacco and how bad it is, they said it's akin, it's the same as drugs, the same as alcohol, same as intoxicants, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, the Prophet mentioned. So they say, based on this, by comparison, we conclude that cigarettes and tobacco is haram, like the way drugs are, or alcohol is haram. Maybe not as bad as alcohol, but by the same, in the same sort of uh, category, on a, to a lesser extent. So this is called qiyas, comparison. Imam Malik also looked at a very unique way, and this is where he really differed, something full of flexibility. In his madhab, you will find three things that the other imams didn't practice too much, but they took it uh, to a certain extent. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal didn't take any of it except very little. One of it was called al-istihsan, which means the better of two fiqh matters. If he's got two fiqh matters, he'll take the easier one or the better one. So two possible solutions, you take the easier one. And the second thing he used to follow was Sadd-Dara'a, which means something lawful or unlawful, depending on what it will lead to. For example, if it leads to destruction, eliminate it. So if something is normally halal, I'll give an example, Ibn al-Qayyim used it once. I'm not going to dwell too much into it because we haven't got much time. But Imam Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyya, when he was in prison, he sent a ruling that selling grapes is haram. I'm just explaining this ruling. He went by Imam Malik's method over here, Sadd-Dara'a, to prevent halal things which will lead to haram. He prevented the selling of grapes. And one man who was an official, he got angry at him and he caused him to spend more time in prison because he used to sell grapes and he made his business go down. So he asked him, why did you do that? The Imam Al-Qayyim said to him, Ya Akhi, I only said it from the door of Sadd-Dara'a to prevent harm. What was happening was that he was selling it to people who were becoming well-known and popular in squeezing it and making alcohol. And people were selling alcohol uh, in the black market. And it was becoming on an increase. So he prevented the grapes for a little while. And this is called Sadd-Dara'a. Thirdly, and also something haram can become slightly looked sort of surpassed if it's going if to, in order to stop something greater haram than that. And thirdly, al-masalih al-mursala, the benefits of the public. If something may lead to the harm of the public or, or community, even if it was something halal, even if it was something ordered, then you should stop it. An example of that is Umar radiallahu anhu, when he stopped the severing of the hand for thieves, people who stole. Why? Because there was a drought and there were lots of, lots of poverty. So he stopped or suspended the severing of the hand for a little while and said, no, 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 we can't go to the extreme. It's unfair. It's not just. You can't just do that. So there was a penalty, maybe to pay something or to be imprisoned or uh, forgiven, depending on the situation. And this is al-masalih al-mursala, to look at the benefits of the people at large. And Imam Malik used this to a great extent. And that's why a lot of Imams, they look at the, the school of thought of Imam Malik. Even though Imam Malik in himself was actually quite traditional, quite rigid, being in Medina. Even till today, you go to Mecca and Medina, we still have that view. They're quite rigid, you know. Traditional, in one way. And that's why sometimes the fatwas for the West are, are not very suitable sometimes. I say this with understanding, sincerity, inshallah. But Imam Malik's madhab 
was actually the most flexible because of these three. And the other Imams differed about that. They didn't really agree on it. Maybe Abu Hanifa to a certain extent. Now I'll go on to something about his, the way he respected his seniors and his scholars. There is a story about Imam Malik when he was with two of his teachers. One of them was Rabi'atul Ra'i, the Garden of Great Opinions. And the other one was Ibn Zuhri. Imam Malik was still, he was the junior of them. But he had reached the level of great scholar. He was giving fatwas, as we said, at the age of 21. People from around the world come to him, to Medina, to learn of him at the age of 21. Today, 21-year-olds, what are they doing? Still racing on the street on their P-plates, trying to beat uh, you know, other P-platers, girls and stuff, and uh, trying to still, uh, uh, you know, I call them uh, lollipop suckers. Still like children. <laughs> still sucking their lollipop at 21. So, uh, I don't mean to offend anybody, but you know what I mean. 21-year-olds, still, they think that they're still uh, little kids. When these imams at 21 are giving great fatwas. So, uh, Imam Zuhri and Rabi'at Ray were sitting there. Imam Malik was there. And we're talking about, they're older than him by about 40 years here. So, Rabi'at Ray and Imam Zuhri, Ibn Zuhri, they differed on an opinion, on an issue. So, they looked at... Uh, Imam Malik and Rabi'ah was the main teacher of Imam Malik. He's the main teacher before Ibn Zuhri. So they asked him, What do you think? Yeah, Imam. Imam Malik, he was quiet. He said, What do you think, Ibn Zuhri? Asked him, What do you think? And the reply of Imam Malik was, The Master has answered. The Master has answered, meaning Rabi'ah, his teacher has answered. Then Imam Zuhri said to him, Wallahi, we won't leave until you give us an answer. We insist. So Imam Malik then gave his answer. And it happened to be the exact opposite answer of his teacher, Rabia. Exact opposite. Ibn Zuhri looked at him and he said, I agree with you. And they walked away respectfully. The point. How he showed total respect to his teacher and master. I have a lesson to the children and their parents. Do you show respect to your parents when, even when you know that your parents are wrong and you're right? They have a wrong opinion. How many children today are quick to jump at the parents to make them feel embarrassed about their wrong opinion? This is not the way to advise. And between brothers and sisters between us, you want to advise someone? I think it was Imam Malik or Imam Shafi'i quote him inshallah next week, who said, if you want to advise someone, then don't advise them in public. Because if you advise them in public, then you have humiliated them. It defeats the purpose of the advice. Al-Nasiha, Amam al-Nas Fadiha. Advice in front of people is an exposure, is a humiliation. So you've got to avoid that stuff. So even when a person is wrong, address it in a proper way. And next week we're going to give you an example of one of the students of Imam al-Shafi'i, how he advised his teacher on a matter when he waited for all the people to leave. But that's insha'Allah next week. Brothers and sisters, we mentioned that Imam Malik had some sources of income. And there were two main sources of income. But first of all, I'd like to mention he was never a government scholar. 
Because some people think that. Nor did any of these Imams ever rely on an organization or masjid or government to supply them with any income. They always had their own trade and their own skill which they earned from. And they know, they, that's, that's what made them very powerful. So they always spoke the truth even in front of powerful leaders. Now Malik had two pieces of income. One of them was from... Three. One of them was from his business. He sold clothing. The other one was from his friend, Layth ibn Sa'ad. He was actually quite wealthy. He lived in Egypt. And he used to send him wealth every now and then. The third sort of source of income was actually from the Khalifa. He never accepted anything else for anything from anyone else except the Khalifa and only the Khalifa. And he never had a post or a position with the government. He always refused it like the rest of the Imams. Never wanted to... And he was one of those also like Imam Abu Hanifa who refused to be a judge. All these scholars refused to be a judge because they didn't want to be gathered in the, on the Day of Judgment with the rest of the rulers of the world. Who are they going to be gathered with? How many corrupt rulers? You don't want to be gathered on a Day of Judgment with these rulers. You want to be gathered with the likes of the Prophet and his companions. You don't want to be with those other rulers, the dictators, because there are so many of them. So they refused the position of judge and ruling. Why did he accept gifts from the Khalifa? I'm not talking about a wage, gifts. He had a different philosophy to Abu Hanifa and the rest. They'd never accepted even gifts from the Khalifa himself, Khalifa al-Mansur and the others. However, his philosophy was like this. He wanted to keep a channel of good terms open between him and the Khalifa in order to give them a good advice because he thought that if I can keep a channel with them, it will help the community. This is his way of thinking. Secondly, he did not look at the wealth that the Khalifa had as being the wealth of the Khalifa. He assumed the wealth of the Khalifa, and he had a point to do so, was actually the wealth of the Muslims. It was from the zakat money, which was put into Bayt Mal al-Muslimin, social security of the Muslims, which actually belongs to the Mujahideen, the people who fought in, to protect the community in their country, and Nadeen. And it also went to the poor people, and the teachers, the scholars, and the students, and the widows, and the orphans. Imam Malik was one of the teachers and the scholars, and he was also a mujahid. So he considered that he had right to this wealth anyway, and never considered to be the Khalifa's wealth. And I'm going to give you some evidence on why he did, how he did not consider that, inshallah, in a short while. So these are one of the reasons why I accept this gift. Otherwise, for any other reason, you shouldn't. There is a story about when he accepted an income from Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, his friend, uh, he was so generous that one time he asked his friend Al-Layth for a dye. Dye. You know the dye that you color your clothes with. His students asked for some dye because they want to dye their clothing in. So he sent a letter to him asking for that. And Al-Layth sent him a generous amount of money. He sent him 1,000 dinars. And he, sorry, he sent, him, he sent him extra dye which... If he sold it, he'd make an extra 1,000 dinars out of it. So it was a sizable amount. Enough for all the people of Medina. So what he did was, his students did take this material, this dye, and they did sell it. And they made 1,000 dinars out of it for their selves. I think I'll leave the issue of the government and the imam to the end. 
I'd like to move a little bit to something else which I haven't spoken about very in detail and that is his clothing and his manner of, of uh, the way he dressed. We said that asceticism, uh, keeping away from the eases of the world and luxuries, Imam Malik was a little bit different to that. He considered staying away, or zuhud, asceticism means staying away from the luxuries, comes from the heart and shows itself in your actions, but not in your appearance, for the following reasons. He said, Rasul said, Inna Allaha yuhibbu an yura athara ni'matihi ala abdi. Allah likes that the, His blessings on His servants are shown in public. So if Allah grants you something nice, Allah likes you to show it, but not to show off. To be humble about it, but not to show off. And to show this ni'mah with sincerity. Secondly, Imam Malik looked at himself as standing the position of the Prophet So he had to be on his best decoration. Doesn't Allah say in the Qur'an, Decorate yourselves at every masjid, especially on a Jumu'ah, wear your best of clothing. So Imam Malik used to love to do that. And he considered that a man giving the knowledge has to be in the best presentation. It had its own psychological effect on the people. It has its own psychological effect on the people. And this was the philosophy of Imam Malik. He had his dalil, he had his evidence. And anyone who rejected his evidence, well, he said, well, with respectfully, this is yours. There was a worshipper who was an ascetic. He sent a letter to Imam Malik one time, Abid, who avoided these cities and used to live in the deserts in a hut and used to Abid worshipper. So he sent a letter saying the following: "O oh, Imam, leave this eloquence and go to the deserts and live a simple life. <laughs> live a simple life in ibadah in worship." And this is known to a group called the, you know, which later on appeared. Uh, formally appeared as the Sufis who dwell, who really uh, go on to dwell into this in, 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 in a lot, but not to the uh, certain group of Sufis, not the Sufis, some of the Sufis we have today that uh, do particular things that have no basis to the deen. And when we say Sufi, we mean those who are ascetics who avoid the luxury. Uh, Imam Hassan al Basri did that, uh, Rasulullah did that, Bakr and Umar, in fact, all the prophets were ascetics. They, they tried to avoid the world entering their hearts in every way and they were humble. However, decoration on the outside is not going against the sunnah of the Prophet Rasul said, when a man said, Ya Rasulullah, a person likes to wear nice shoes and nice clothing. He said, Allah is beautiful, he loves beauty. So be beautiful inshaAllah, within Islamic limits of course. So Imam Malik replied to this ascetic, this abid, this mu'min, he said, Allah distributed with great respect. Allah distributed the good actions among His creations the same way as He distributed their sustenance and livelihood. He gives some people the pleasure in salah more than the pleasure in salm or in hajj more than the pleasure of zakat, for example. You happen to find your pleasure in abstinence from luxuries and beautification in worship. I find mine in ilm and knowledge teaching people. I am content with what Allah has given me and so I like to show it and I hope that both of us are on the straight path. This is the way Imam Malik addressed it. The point of this is look at the beautiful, the brotherhood and the respect and the niceness and the kindness they apply to each other with a beautiful dua, with beautiful statements. We don't put each other down. At the end of the day we want sincerity, inshaAllah. And we try to help each other bi'idnihi ta'ala. So you don't all have to be copycats of each other. This person uh, doesn't, likes to be a little bit more humble. This person likes to show his beauty. You don't have to copycat each other. 
and feel uh, you know, put on the spot in front of others thinking you're not doing the right thing. So Imam Malik, we said that he wore a ring, for example, with a, a black stone, and on it he had Hasbi Allah and Amal Wakil. Doesn't mean that you can't do that because others don't do that. You don't have to be copycats, take it easy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Oh, Ya Rasulullah, we have not sent this Quran upon you in order to make your life miserable and hard. This deen makes you happy. It should make you happy and flexible in the, 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 the pleasure which Allah sent upon us. Say, who is it, as Allah says, who is it that forbid the rightful, the, the righteous servants of Allah, the sincere servants, the humble servants of Allah, from taking pleasure in the beauties that Allah has created for them on earth? Uh, Imam Malik produced a monumental book, monumental work. It is called Al-Muwatta. Al-Muwatta al-Imam Malik. You probably have heard about it. This book is a collection of prophetic hadiths and some companion sayings, etc. It contains currently about 1,720 hadiths. And probably the first book of hadith, very popular book, and it was about 100 years before Bukhari and Muslim and the six books of hadith that we know about. So basically some scholars say this was probably the first book of hadith ever. And it is one of the most authentic. Now this uh, book, uh, Al-Muwatta, it took about 11 years of Imam Malik's time to complete. Into chapters and it was under chapters. And it came to us through one of the students of Abu Hanifa, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani who studied under Malik for three years, and he propagated this book along with another scholar. It reached another scholar by the name of Asad ibn al-Furat, who was famous for uh, propagating Islam to a place called Sicily. And a student of Malik wrote Al-Muwatta, and the basics of the madhabs spread to Africa and Spain, and this kitab uh, Al-Muwatta was spread by his students. Imam Malik didn't write Al-Muwatta himself. He collected it and his students actually put it together. The way they put it was, first of all, there was 100,000 hadiths in it. From the 100,000, 9,000 were taken as being most authentic. And from the 9,000, we finally ended up with 1,720 most authentic hadiths till today. Till today. And I mentioned last week that among them are several of them which Imam Malik narrated himself. We call it the golden chain. They are the most authentic hadiths existing today. So his students compiled after, it took about 30 years after Imam Malik for this book to be completely edited and filtered until now we have 1,720 hadiths that you can rely on in their authenticity. Imam al-Bukhari and Muslim and the others that you hear about, they have some of their hadiths with extra of them that maybe didn't reach Imam Malik in his time. Which gives us an example of why the madhabs did differ in some of their opinions. Imam al-Shafi'i says about al-Muwatta, No book before the book of Allah was more authentic and accurate than al-Muwatta. Keeping in mind that Bukhari and Muslim weren't existing at that time. Imam Shafi'i said this, until today we keep that. Imam al-Mansur, who was the Khalifa at that time, remember we mentioned him in the time of Abu Hanifa, he came up to Imam Malik at the Kaaba and he said to him, Ya Imam, 
I want this book to be copied and printed and distributed and I want it to be the main source and every other book of hadith to be destroyed and burnt. It has to be the standard. Imam Malik said to him, no, don't do that. For there are people who receive knowledge from their imams and from different sources. And there could be sources that are not known to me. To take only my book and refuse all the rest is a dangerous thing to do. No, keep their hadiths, keep their statements for maybe one day they'll add to Al-Muatta and maybe you know more that people will learn from. Don't take away all the other knowledge just based on mine. For I am a man of knowledge and there's still more for me to learn. And this is the way the Imams always spoke. We want to stay away from what the students of these Imams did afterwards and what we do now, which is something called At-Ta'assub Al-Madhabi, which is the strict following of the Madhab and rejecting the others, not praying behind the person of another Madhab because I think that their prayer is not accepted based on this and based on that. Wallahi, this is haram, this is firqah, this is division. These are differences of opinion and respect to each other. They learnt off each other. This person of this Imam and the student of this Imam, they were taught each other. They respected each other all with every sense of the word. So this is the Kitab Al-Muwatta by Imam, Ibn Malik, Imam Malik, which we still have today. Imam Malik's greatest fear. Can anyone guess what is the greatest fear of all Imams? Can anyone guess? The most frightening thing for all Imams. What do you think? No? It is hellfire, that's for everybody. But I wanted to, something special about the Imams they feared in this life. When they make Ishtihad and Very good, good on you. When they make Ishtihad, can deduce a matter to give a fatwa. Someone asked them a question and they've got to give them a verdict. This was the most frightening thing. This was the norm of all the scholars, especially these four Imams and the ones like them and in their time. The greatest fear of Imams is to answer questions. And this is from the something, a characteristic called Wara. I'll give you an example. Every time Imam Malik was asked for a verdict that didn't exist before, scholars hadn't dealt with it before, he would say to the person, wait. He'd go and make wudu, then he'd come back, he'd sit down, and he would start by saying, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. There is no might and there is no power except with Allah. Then he would give the answer to the best of his knowledge. He used to say, ما من شيء أشد علي من أن أسأل عن مسألة من الحلال والحرام لأن هذا قطع من حكم الله. He used to say, there is nothing more harder upon me. In life, then when I was asked a question about halal or haram, is this permissible or not? Because I am representing the hukum, the ruling of Allah Himself, the creator of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is a very important and serious matter for all of us to adhere to. So be very careful about this, situ- about this issue. So the scholar's form of decoration was a common motto. Guess what it was? The common motto, the form of decoration of the scholars was, I do not know. Would you imagine? I do not know. And I'll give you an example. Al-Haythami, which was one of the students of Imam Malik, says, I witnessed Imam Malik being asked about 48 issues, matters, on separate occasions. And he answered only 30, he said, he, he replied to 32 out of 48 of them, so two-thirds, he replied to them, لا أدري. 
I do not know. 32 out of 48. So how many did he actually answer? 48 take away 32. Huh? 16. He answered 16 and 32 he said, I don't know. We're talking about the great Imam. Abu Darda, one of the Sahabas, he says, to say I do not know is half of knowledge. To say I do not know is half of knowledge. And this is the meaning, The ones who truly fear Allah are the scholars. There is a story about a Moroccan, talking about the humbleness. A Moroccan from Morocco, which was about four months journey to reach Medina, he had a question which all of the Imams of Morocco could not answer him. So he traveled for four months with a message from the Imam saying, there is no knowledgeable, more knowledgeable scholar on the face of the earth than Imam Malik. Go to him in Medina and get us the answer for your, verdict, for your question. So he set out for four months, this Moroccan man. We don't know who he is, but uh, maybe I don't know who he is. When he reached Imam Malik, you can imagine the desert and the heat and the struggle. When he arrived, he asked Imam Malik the question. Imam Malik met and made wudu, came and sat down, said, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله, stood up and said to him, give me till tomorrow. The next day, he did the same thing and he sat down and he said to him, my answer is, I do not know. The Moroccan student stood up and said, Ya Imam, with all due respect, the Imams of Morocco are waiting for my answer and I've traveled four months and now I have to return another four months. So how many is that? Eight months to get the answer. I can't say to them, the great Imam says, I do not know. The Imam looked at him and as I said, the man of aura, he said to him, well then go and tell your scholars that Imam Malik says he doesn't know. The Moroccan went back and this is what he told them. I do not know. Because this can earn him this place in hellfire. If he knew that he had made a mistake, he'd gather his students and then he would clarify his mistake in front of all his students. That's something very heavy to do. Listen, students, I said this before and I've made a mistake. This is what the correct answer is. This is why the Khalifa Abu Ja'far al-Mansur in Hajj, he came and asked him a few questions. And then he said to him, I have decided to take your book and make copies and spread it throughout the world. And he said to him, Ya Amir al-Mu'minin la ta'fa'al, please don't do it. Don't force the people to accept something when I am a man who can make mistakes. Tomorrow I may change. And fa'alan, really, as we said, the muwatta' was changed afterwards until it was filtered. My brothers and sisters in, in Islam, the character of Imam Malik is what stood out. Yahya ibn Yahya, the student of his, as we mentioned before, he said, after I graduate, graduated from the school of Imam Malik, I spent one whole year, one extra whole year with him. He's graduated. Imam Malik said that, Khalas, now you are free, you are, you've graduated, you are now qualified to give classes and so on. He said, I spent one extra year after graduating with Imam Malik, and the only reason I spent it was to learn Imam Malik's etiquettes.
different to Abu Hanifa, when Imam Malik accepted gifts, as we said before, I just wanted to say that, especially for someone like Al-Mansur, Imam Malik did accept them from him, when Imam Abu Hanifa used to trick the Khalifa, when he offered him a gift, he used to say, keep it with you, you know, because there's lots of thieves, they'll steal it off me. Abu Hanifa. But this was a trick for him to not take the wealth. Later on, when Abu Hanifa died in Mansur, the Khalifa found out that Imam Abu Hanifa himself, he was like the banker for his students. He used to keep their money with him. And he used to say to the Khalifa, keep my money with you because there's thieves. Because he didn't want it. As for Imam Malik, he did the opposite. And I want to mention now, to explain how Imam Malik was not a government scholar because he accepted gifts. Because some people said this after him about Imam Malik. And this was not good. People, some people had grudges about it. Imam Malik, he went against the norms, yes, of the scholars, which is to accept the gifts from the scholars. He considered the stereotype of scholars, meaning that they don't accept the government, and that they enter, you know, what's the stereotype of scholars? They're always entering the palaces of the umara of the rulers, and they're telling them off about what they're doing. They stand firm about it. They never accept anything on it. Like Imam Abu Hanifa, even though he never fought physically the, 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 you know, the, the corrupt government, he did fund rebels. He funded rebels in an indirect way to straighten the government up. He did do that. Imam Malik was a little bit different. He was powerful and not undermined. And he actually had to face an ordeal and torture. I'd like to say that all four Imams... All four Imams, even though they had different ways of dealing with the government, all of them got imprisoned and all of them got tortured, including Imam Malik. Even with the way Imam Malik dealt with them, he had a downwards, upwards approach, down, up approach. The rest of them had up, down approach. Get into the palace and change. He thought, no, come up towards them and then change. Imam Malik witnessed the fall of the Umayyad dynasty and the rise of the Abbasid dynasty. He witnessed eight Khalifas in the time of the Umayyad dynasty and five Khalifas in the time of the Abbasid dynasty. He lived 90 years, or 86 or 90 years, making him the oldest, the longest living among the four Imams. Imam Shafi lived only 54 years, subhanAllah. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, about 70, and Imam Abu Hanifa, about 70 years. Uh, Imam Malik, as I said, not a government scholar. Once, Harun al-Rashid, I'll give you an example of why he wasn't a government scholar and why this gift didn't accept, uh, didn't fool him. There was a story of one of the, one of the Khalifas named Harun al-Rashid at his time. He once made an oath to do something, and then he broke that oath. The Khalifa, Harun al-Rashid, famous. He made an oath, he said, Wallahi, I'm going to do this. And then he broke that. He didn't do it. Now we all know that you have to expiate an oath if you don't do it. The way you expiate it is you either. You have to follow this order. You have to free a slave. If you're unable to free a slave, you've got to feed 10 poor people. If you're unable to feed 10 poor people, then you must fast three days in a row. The way you expiate is the things that are hardest for you. So the Harun al-Rashid, the Khalifa, 
He called and said, what should I do? The scholars, the other scholars said to him, you can take any of the above three options. Imam Malik, however, said to him, no, you have to fast three days. Harun al-Rashid said, but I can do any of the others. I can free a slave. I've got money to pay for ten people. Why should I fast three days? The Imam said to him courageously and without fear, but the money you have does not belong to you, but to the Muslims. And if we were to return all the wealth that you have to their rightful owners, you'll have nothing. So you don't qualify to free a slave or to pay to ten people. You'll end up poor. You'll have nothing. Like Amr ibn Abdul Aziz, the great, who considered to one of the fifth righteous Khalifas. He died with a very, he died poor man, and he was the Khalifa. So this is what he said to me. He said, your money is for the Muslims. If we were to take it away, you'll be a poor person. So my point is, fast three days. The point is that Imam Malik was courageous, and this is proof that him taking the gifts did not mean that he was a government puppet like some of the scholars today. And he, if he didn't agree with him, he didn't mind. This was his way, he stuck to it with his dalil. He was not a government scholar. Once Harun al-Rashid, he gave 3,000 dirhams to Imam Malik. And he said to him, when these 3,000 dirhams reach you, I want you to come immediately to my palace with my royal order. He had to leave Medina and go to, to Iraq, to Baghdad. Now what did we say last week? Imam Malik never left Medina. And he insisted on never ever leaving it. In fact, he never rode on a horse or a camel or a vehicle because he believed as an imam, how dare he lift his legs off the ground while the Prophet's body is in the ground. This was him. Imam, he thought he was the role model. He had to have really high stakes. Doesn't apply to us, but him. A letter to come to me to Baghdad because of the 3,000 dinars. He sent the 3,000 dinars back saying to him, I will never leave Medina. In other words, keep dreaming. That's basically what he was saying. So what did Harun al-Rashid do? To show you how much they respected him. He sent him double. 6,000 dirhams with no conditions. So Imam Malik looked at the wealth and looked at his students and says, مَنْ تَرَكَ شَيْءً لِلَّهِ عَوَّضَهُ اللَّهُ خَيْرًا مِنْ Prophet ﷺ says, Whoever leaves something for the sake of Allah, Allah will give him something better. And he distributed among his students and himself. The Khalifas sent their own children to Imam Malik. In fact, some of the Khalifas that became Khalifas were ex-students of Imam Malik. Can you imagine? Imam Malik coming in, and this is one of the stories. He used to enter the palace of the Khalifa. And he refused, I'm almost done insha'Allah, he refused to ever sit in the back. You know, when you enter on the palace, there's people in front. You can't, you know, walk among the people just so you can have VIP. Imam Malik insisted on a VIP. Not only to sit in the front, but next to the Khalifa. Does anyone know why? I have no time to quiz you, so I'll just say it anyway. I know that Adhan is soon. Imam Malik wanted to teach the people that the scholars are more important and powerful than even the Khalifas. And that is true. It is not the Khalifas who are the inheritors of the Prophets, it is the ulama who are the inheritors of the Prophets. And he wanted to show the people that the ilm of the Prophet is the first rule, not the rule of the Khalifa. So he always insisted, and when he went to the palace, so I don't mean in Baghdad, residential palaces in Medina and Mecca. 
When he entered, he would look at the Khalifa and see like large people, like the way you're sitting here, from the back. People would be calling, he'd call out. He says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen. He'd look up at him. And he'll say to him, Is this, will, you, will you accept for your Imam to sit at the back? And the Khalifa would say to him, No, everyone open up, open up. And he'd let him come to sit right next to him. When the Imam sat, sat next to the Khalifa, he would say to him the following words. Listen to them. The Imam Khalifa, so imagine now the Khalifa say, Imams at the back says, Ya Amir al Mu'mineen. And he says, Come, come, open the space. Comes and sits right next to him on the same chair. And then the Imam would look at him before the Khalifa would speak. And he would say to him, Ya Amir al Mu'mineen, O leader of the believers. Allah says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَرْفَعُوا أَصْوَاتَكُمْ فَوْقَ صَوْتِ النَّبِيِّ O you who believe, do not raise your voice over the voice of the Prophet. I'm here to speak the hadith of the Prophet. So don't raise your voice over mine. Because it is not me speaking, it is the Prophet speaking. And by this the Khalifa had to lower his voice in front of the Imam. This is what I mean by the man of aura. He always spoke the truth. Imam Malik one day enters one of the residential palace of the Khalifa and he asks for a cup of water. So they give him a royal glass. The royal glasses, they were glass and they had a silver ring around them, made of silver. <coughs> Imam Malik looked at this, sil- at this glass of the silver ring, he didn't say a word. He put the cup down, did not take a sip of it and walked out. At that time, the Khalifa was Al-Mahdi. His name was Al-Mahdi, one of his ex-students. And he said, where are you going, ya Imam? Why are you leaving? And the Imam says, I do not drink from a cup which has silver around it. The Khalifa Al-Mahdi then ordered all the silver rings to be taken, removed from the cups of the palace. Just showing you that if he was a government scholar, would he say something like that? Never. Now, lastly... Because of this truth, something happened. And he had to face a terrible ordeal. He clashed with the state. Every imam clashed with the state. A revolution against Abu Ja'far al-Mansur began. And Imam Abu Hanifa was about in his 60s at that time. A revolution began against Abu Ja'far al-Mansur's rule they considered regime. And the people who started this uh, revolution were people from the Prophet's family. They were called the Alawites, the Alawis, not the Alawis of today. When you say Alawites, historically, it meant the bloodline of the Prophet ﷺ. They were from Ali radiallahu anhu, Fatima, those, yani. those are the people who made a revolution against it. And the leader of the revolutionists was led by Muhammad al-Nafs al-Zakiyyah who was a descendant of Imam Hassan, of, of Hassan radiallahu anhu, Al-Hassan ibn Ali radiallahu anhu, the grandson of the Prophet And Imam Malik, he supported, he supported the leader of this movement. And he wished him success in a letter or verbally, because he thought that if he became the new ruler, if Muhammad, Imam Muhammad al-Nafs al-Zakir, a great Imam, if he became the new ruler, then it would be better. It would be better. This is what Imam Malik thought on the inside. According to his students, this is what they said. Imam Malik considered if he became a better ruler, the ummah of the Muslims would be in a better way. 
So one day, the Imam was asked, what happened was, the governor of Medina, he wanted to be the, person wanted to be the governor. So he started going around basically forcing the people to pledge allegiance for him, meaning to vote for him and pledge allegiance. You accept me. So there was a bit of a force happening. And the people didn't like this, so the revolution increased. One day, someone asked the Imam Malik a question, which had a political motive behind it. And Imam Malik knew this, is very smart. The question was, if someone forced, if, someone, if a man was forced to divorce his wife, and he divorced her, does the divorce count? Imam Malik said, in fiqh and Islam, nothing is valid out of force. Nothing. Anything that is forced is not valid. So if the man divorces his wife because he's forced, divorce her, divorce her. And if divorced, it's not counted. This had a political meaning. Meaning, allegiance to the ruler. If you are compelled, it's invalid. He's an invalid ruler. This was a big problem. Huge problem. So the Khalifa found out. And he sent news for the Imam to stop saying what he was saying and never to repeat that rule, that verdict again. The Imam replied, I cannot conceal knowledge if I know it. So they sent a spy to one of his circles and this spy asked the question again to check if this Imam really meant what he's saying to test him. So he asked him the question and the Imam answered him exactly the same answer as before. Knowing the political consequence of it. The result of this was, there was an order to capture Imam Malik in Medina, to the governor, the prince of Medina. They captured him, imprisoned him, and they tortured him. He was beaten so badly until his arms became disabled. He couldn't lift his arms for months. And his shoulder, his right shoulder, was dislocated. Imagine an imam with all his aura. And probably among the officials were his ex-students. How can you beat an imam? Like, how could they beat him? To the point where his arms became disabled for months and his arm was dislocated from his body. And he would not refuse. He, he would not go back on his word. In that time, Imam Malik prayed a little while with his arms down. This is documented. And there are some people who wanted to make a joke out of this. I don't know why in this time, which still exists till today with some sincere people, saying that the school of thought of Imam Malik considers that you should pray with your arms down. There is no evidence for this in the school of Imam Malik, except this situation, because he was beaten on his arms. Anybody, if you can't stand, you sit. So this is a funny thing which occurred, and I don't know where people got this from. The imams, the great imams, don't agree with this. So the Imamikis do not, should not really leave their arms down. I'm not going to go into too much fiqh about it. Then there was a second revolt. When they heard about Imam Malik being tortured this way, his students got up. You mess with his students? These are the students that if you entered his circle and you just raised your voice, I know time's up. Raised your voice, they'll beat you. So Imam al-Mansur, Khalifa al-Mansur sent a letter straight away to the Khalifa, to Imam Malik saying, I no, he did not send that. He came in person.
to Medina and he says, I apologize, Ya Imam, I did not order this. Please tell me what you need and I will give you. And I've sacked the governor and I've humiliated him and so on. This is what he claimed. And Imam Malik therefore was not a government scholar. The end of his life of Imam Malik after that, he became very ill at the age of 90. And he could not go to the masjid for a little while. He died at the age of 90 years. In introduction to next week's lesson, I just want to say one very small story, insha'Allah. <clears throat> a young man, the age of about 13 years old, in the time of Imam Malik, when Imam Malik was in his middle ages, a young boy by the age of 13, his mother from Mecca, his mother said to him, My son, you are now well known. You have memorized the whole Quran and you have memorized hadith and you have memorized poetry. I want to send you to Imam Malik to learn his adab, his character, before you learn his knowledge. So she got him ready and she wrote a letter to the Prince of Mecca, the governor of Mecca, who was, happened to be her cousin, this woman's cousin. Are you with me? She wrote a letter to him to send a letter to the governor of Medina to go with her son to Imam Malik, basically to intercede for him, to become his teacher. So this young boy took this letter from his mother, from the governor of Mecca, and she packed him some food and sent him off. Young 13-year-old going through the deserts to Medina, seeking knowledge. He reached the governor of Medina and gave him the letter of the governor of Mecca. And the governor of Medina, his face changed. He started to sweat. The young boy looked at him and said, what's wrong? He said, Wallahi, if the governor of Mecca asked me to walk barefooted in the middle of the desert with nothing on my head, it would be easier than for me to go to Imam Malik's house. Because he had so much respect for him. So the boy innocently said to him, well, you don't have to go to him, make him come to you. He forgot that Imam Malik doesn't, it's not as simple as it going to the officials, no way. So he laughed, the governor of Medina laughed, and he said, come on, let's go. So he went to Imam Malik's house. They knocked on the door, and the housemaid, the servant of Imam Malik, answered. And they asked for Imam Malik, the prince, the, the governor of Medina. She said to him, listen, if there is a religious question, right now is not the time. Write it on a paper, and he will answer it for you. If you want to learn hadith, go to his circles of daras, they'll be in a certain time. And if it's a government issue, this is not the time, there's another time for it. So the governor of Medina says, I have a letter for him from the prince of Mecca. So then the young boy says, a big, tall man, blonde, white, colored eyes, unexpected from the people of Medina, came to the door. So as I looked up at him, and the servant lady brought him a chair, he sat on it. And then he said, what does the governor of Mecca want from me? And the governor of Medina just gave him the paper without a word. When Imam Malik read this paper, he threw the paper away saying, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. Has it come to this that knowledge now needs connections? He looked at the young boy and the young boy said to him, أصلح الله الشيخ. May Allah straighten the path of the shaykh. Out of respect, young boy. He said to him, I am a Qurashi. I am from the lineage of the Prophet So now, basically, he forced, he obliged the Imam to listen to him. You have to respect the lineage of the Prophet Qurashi. I have memorized the Quran at the age of seven. And your muwatta, 
the whole of it. I've memorized it with this chain of narrations by the age of 10. My mother sent me here to learn from you. Imam Malik looked at him and said, Ya Ghulam, O oh young boy, Ittaqillah, Fiya Allah, Wajtanibil Ma'asi, and stay away from sins. If you do so, there will be something of your future if you apply these two advices. Does anyone know who the young boy was? No, not Ahmad ibn Hanbal. He was Imam, yes, he was going to say it. He was Imam al-Shafi'i. Are you 13? So 13-year-old gave me the name of the 13-year-old boy. He was, MashaAllah, Fatahallah alayhi wa ala So he was Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i. You thought he wasn't going to be a Shafi'i, didn't you? So it was Imam Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i. Next week, inshallah, we will begin the story of Imam al-Shafi'i. هذا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين. اللهم صل على محمد رسول الله. اللهم صل على محمد نبي الله. اللهم صل على رسول الله اللهم صل على محمد